Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. What is in your soy sauce? What are the ingredients? Oh, now you want my secret formula, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I want to go into the business. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Now you're treading on dangerous ground. <laughs> I thought we were going to have a friendly conversation. <laughs> Come on. If your kitchen is anything like my kitchen, you have this one drawer that you hope no one ever opens. That drawer in my house is like a mausoleum for sticky rubber bands and dried out pens and obsolete battery chargers. But more than any other thing, it has this almost supernatural ability to collect takeout sauce packets. You know, the flimsy plastic ones with the tear open corners, like packets of soy sauce. We all use them. North Americans consume Billions of single-serve soy sauce packets every year. If you have that sort of drawer, or just the next time you come across one of those soy packets, you should thank this man. This is Howard Epstein speaking, and uh, I am the chairman of the board of a company by the name of Carry Out Company, headquartered in New York. We started out as a uh, company that was selling to the Asian trade here in New York, mostly making soy sauce packages 53 or 54 years ago. Howard Epstein is the plastic tear-open soy sauce packet king. Back in the 1950s and 1960s, Chinese restaurants, they needed some way to convey the sauce with the food that was being taken out. And so it was a natural to devise this packaging. And I had had a lot of experience in packaging when I worked for my dad in the teabag business. So that was kind of the easy part for me to put together. That was not a big problem. So the making, no biggie. But the selling was a little tougher. There were a couple things not necessarily working in Howard's favor. What's a Jewish guy from the Bronx doing trying to break into this this Asian market of the most ubiquitous condiment there is? It's a moment of madness. That's what it was. It was a, <laughs> it was a ridiculous thing for me to do. The Chinese uh, were very skeptical that an American would go into the business and not just want to take advantage of them. So the start was really, really difficult. And I used to go into Chinatown in New York to sell the wholesalers there. You know, they, they saw me coming in week after week after week for a year or two. You know, they started to say, hey, maybe this guy is for real and is going to be in this business. It's not just an in and out, you know, and take my money and run. Eventually, it got working for me. Today, Carry Out, Howard's company, sells a huge range of products, from that soy sauce that started it all to other Chinese-style condiments like duck and mustard sauce. They even sell microwavable takeout containers. But Howard's greatest achievement, more even than making those takeout packets a part of all our lives, it's what he put inside them. His original soy sauce, the stuff that in the last 50 years has become the gold standard for what soy sauce is supposed to taste like, it isn't actually soy sauce. 
Go ahead, rifle through your condiment stash. Check for yourself. Soy sauce, real soy sauce, is a fermented condiment that's slowly, painstakingly brewed from soybean paste, roasted grain, and a special bacteria. Howard's soy sauce is water and salt, caramel color, preservative, and a bit of flavoring. It's not brewed. Most of overseas soy sauces are brewed. Sometimes it takes years to brew it. Howard's is very simply prepared and mixed and packaged. The sauce that you and I and a few hundred million North Americans grew up on, it's a substance that Howard Epstein calls American soy. The formula that we used in 1964 is the exact same formula that we use in 2017. That has not changed one iota from origination to what it is now. From CBC, this is The Fridge Light, the hidden stories behind the food you eat. I'm Chris Nottle-Smith. That junk drawer with the American soy sauce and takeout ketchup packets, or that shelf in your fridge, you know the one with the half-empty hot sauce and the lonely bottle of ranch dressing? All those sauces say a lot more than you might think about who you are. Because sauce isn't just this workaday flavor booster for French fries and Chinese takeout. Sauce shapes the way we look at the world. Sauce is culture in a bottle. And if the success of Howard Epstein's American soy sauce is any indication, it's culture that most of us never think all that much about. In this episode, a dive deep into the sauce aisle. How sauces are made and what goes into them. Why some sauces fail and others succeed. How they find their way into our fridges and junk drawers. And how a very rare few of them win the great sauce aisle sweepstakes and become household names. If you need more proof for that culture-in-a-bottle argument, look no further than ranch dressing. Bring me my ranch dressing hose! Ranch is America's favorite salad topper by a long shot, and it's second only to ketchup as the continent's favorite sauce. All those ranch bottles, the millions and millions that are sold in North America each year, they come filled not just with zesty, herby creaminess and a liberal dose of MSG, but also with some pretty entrenched assumptions about culture and class and even race. While this may be hard to believe today, ranch started out as this indie, homemade, small-batch labor of love. Its main ingredients were buttermilk and mayonnaise with chives, dill, and parsley for fresh market brightness, and onion and garlic for depth. Its origins are at a getaway dude ranch in California called Hidden Valley. Hidden Valley's owners used to serve it to their visitors. And when the taste caught on, they opened a ranch dressing factory and soon you could buy it anywhere in the United States. There's a place called Hidden Valley where kids not only eat their vegetables, they can't get enough. My name is Chad Allen and I'm an owner at Twisted Ranch. It's located in St. Louis, Missouri in historic Soulard. To Chad Allen, ranch dressing is everything. Ranch dressing is his restaurant's entire reason for being. Right now we have 27 different flavors. 
some of our most popular ones are the cheesy bacon, um, our barbecue, our Asian zing, the roasted garlic. Uh, I need to be totally, brutally honest for a second. When I first heard there's an all-ranch restaurant, my reaction, my first reaction, it was kind of a chortle. As in, come on, it's ranch dressing. How can people spend good money on that stuff? More than maybe any other sauce, ranch dressing is snob bait, and I fell way too easily into the trap. In 2016, a writer in the Washington Post even called ranch, quote, disgusting milk rot, and mocked the people who like it as faddish Philistines. And the Urban Dictionary doesn't even call ranch ranch. They just call it white trash ketchup, which I need to say, in defense of ranch lovers, is totally wildly unfair. Ranch is more than just something you put on your food. Like a surprising number of sauces, the other thing you get in every bottle is totally arbitrary assumptions of class and taste. Pardon me, would you have any grey poupon? But of course. (laughs) Remember those grey poupon commercials from the 1980s? Grey poupon, one of life's finer pleasures. Those ads imbued Dijon mustard with some serious snob appeal. After all, it was just mustard. But almost overnight, Grey Poupon was transformed into a symbol of impeccable, upper-class taste. Ranch, in popular culture at least, is totally the opposite of that. If Grey Poupon is a butler in a Rolls Royce, Ranch is a family of sunburned hillbillies sleeping in a jalopy on the lawn. What's funniest about it all is that identity doesn't have any relationship with what's actually in the stuff. Because give or take a few ingredients, ranch is a whole lot like this other dressing made from buttermilk, herbs, and mayo. Green goddess. And unlike ranch, green goddess is celebrated by food elites, by classy people. Green goddess is the sort of dressing you find at society weddings. Chad Allen, for his part, he's just owning his ranch-loving ways. Well, ever since I was a kid, I didn't really like ketchup or mustard or any of the other condiments. I would put ranch dressing on everything. Hot dogs, pizza, dip chips in it, like whatever I was eating, most of the time I would put ranch on it. So it's continued through an adult and even going to restaurants, sometimes I base my choices on how good the ranch is. Turns out, a lot of people do. We are doing very well. Almost every single day we are on a wait list for the full dining room. One other culture in a bottle case from slightly different origins. You don't know what sriracha is. Where have you been? It's everywhere. This recipe, which has become so in demand. Got my chopsticks, got my ramen. I need something else. Ha ha, sriracha sauce. In 1980, a refugee from Vietnam named David Tran started selling his homemade Southeast Asian style hot sauce out of a van in LA's Chinatown. David made sriracha from fresh red jalapeno peppers, garlic, and vinegar, pretty much, and packaged into clear plastic green-capped squeeze bottles with a picture of a rooster on the front. He didn't hire a sales force or advertise, and his target market, he's always insisted, was expat Southeast Asians around the U.S. 
Today, sriracha is a prime example of how sauces don't just reflect back a society's dominant, most mainstream culture the way ranch does. They can be an entry point for new ones, too. Less than 40 years after its launch in the U.S., Sriracha now turns up in four-star restaurants and fast food franchises, and it's a star flavoring in scores of other products, from craft beer to beef jerky to Heinz ketchup and even lip balm. In just a couple of generations, that sauce has been transformed from a niche Vietnamese-style outlier to an all-American classic. That sort of success is what everybody's gunning for at the Fancy Foods Show, a sort of annual debutante ball for sauce industry startups. Fancy Foods is held in New York each summer. It's a giant grocery industry trade fair. There are 6,000 booths here, pushing almost every sort of food product imaginable. If you're the sort of person who lives for sample day at the local supermarket, this is kind of like that but way beyond your wildest dreams. And there are hundreds of sauce makers with well-practiced pitches and hopeful smiles. The show is where new tastes and new ideas and a whole lot of new sauces get their first shot at retail success. My name is Carrie Cole. I am the owner of Gold Rush Mustard. I am making my mom's recipe that she swore never to give to anyone. And what sets us apart is we are the only mustard that is made with butter. My name is Dan Ballister. I'm the CEO of Smoke Hall Foods. We make the General's hot sauce. We needed packaging that would turn people's heads. So we decided a hand grenade themed bottle was not such a horrible idea. So I think we can get away with it. It, it turned my head. I came here right away. My name is Lauren Chan. We have mother-in-law's gochujang, which is the number one selling sauce in Korea. My name is KC Kai with K-Mama Sauce. It is my mom-inspired sauce. And actually, she's here with us at the show doing the cooking back there. So, Well, we started out as uh, a soy sauce microbrewery in Louisville, Kentucky. Hey, guys. I'm from CBC Canada. We are called Buenas, and we make South American-inspired goods. They look like sauces. Are they sauces? Red wine vinegar base. There's uh, garlic, onion, smoked chili peppers, and then cilantro. Real clean, real natural. It's delicious. The other thing you get at Fancy Foods is buyers and distributors. The aisles are jammed with store executives, product developers, and category managers from essentially every major supermarket and specialty grocery company on earth. They prowl the aisles on the hunt for whatever seems fresh and sellable. People like this guy. Tell me who you are and what you do. Uh, Peter Neal, my brother Chris and I started a food company 30 years ago called Neal Brothers Foods. Peter's a distributor and also a bit of a sauce guru. After 30 years in the business, he's heard a lot of ideas. So I tried him on one of my own. Okay, so I've got my great Aunt Rosamund's smoked paprika and gochujang goulash sauce that is the best in the world. It's the best thing you've ever tried. I want to bring it to market. How do you help me? What we need to see is some sweat equity. We want to see that they've put time and energy into it, whether it's uh, producing the product, delivering it to 20, 30, 40 stores, proving it in terms of success, putting the promotion behind it, the demos behind it. Part of creating a really good brand is is genuine, and it's that genuine personality behind it. And, And whether it's you creating these sauces that were in the spirit of your grandma or whatever the inspiration, whatever their story is, you need to make sure you've got that story down so that when you're talking to the buyer of a store, they're going to say, I met Chris 
Nettlesmith. He was the nicest guy, and his Aunt Gussie had the best goulash, and you wouldn't believe the story behind it. She made this in Europe, and it's got the most incredible fresh local ingredients you've ever had. My God, you've got to try it. That's when you start getting some magic happening. That's when you start getting that sizzle happening that allows that product to carry on on its own and be able to operate and be able to be successful with a distributor. In case Peter didn't make this totally clear, your sauce has to become your entire life so that everywhere you go, out for dinner, to the movies, at ball games, at your day job, because, of course, you still have a day job. Your only thought is selling. You always have to have a bottle ready. As one sauce expert told me, you never know who you're going to meet. And all that work... That's the bare minimum. At some point, pretty early on, you've also got to figure out how to translate this thing you created with love in your kitchen into a product you can replicate in a factory year-round and preferably for cheap. You've got to figure out how to get that sauce made. At Celltrade, just outside Toronto, sauce making is the specialty. The company develops and manufactures high-end sauces, mostly for giant restaurant and grocery companies' private label brands. In any given year, they make 300 different types. If you shop at Kroger or Super Value in the United States or at some of the bigger Canadian chains, you've tasted Celltrade's work. In the company's conference room, there is literally a trophy cabinet filled with hit sauces and condiments they've made over the years. Horseradish and chipotle mayos, barbecue sauces and Indian curries. Every one of those sauces reflects months, if not years, of labor. And that's just to get to the manufacturing stage. It takes that long because a lot of the things that really matter, that you and I would never, ever think about as we're strolling through the sauce aisle, they take incredible amounts of work. Things like making a sauce shelf-stable so it'll last in the bottle. Things like not just how a sauce tastes, but how its taste unfolds on customers' tongues. Here's Elspeth Copeland, a product developer. When we're evaluating products together, we often talk about beginning, middle, and end of the flavor. So I'll say, well, at the beginning, I'm hit with acidity, and in the middle, I get the sweetness of garlic, and at the end, I've got a burn from acidity. And then we'll have a discussion so that it's a better story, beginning, middle, and end. That end, just like a sauce's beginning and middle, it matters. The sweetness of garlic that Elspeth mentions, that sweet garlic taste isn't so sweet if you can still taste it hours afterwards. And hot sauces present their own problems. You know the sensation you get from horseradish and hot mustard, the fiery, peppery wave that rushes up into your nose? Sauce developers have an insider term for it. Retronasal burn. As a sauce sits on a shelf in its bottle, it can lose that kick. That retronasal burn can vanish. This is Celltrade's research and innovation chef, Ben Crutch. We have to use a combination of different tactics. One is to use mustard oil, which gives you a lot of peakiness initially and burns really, really hot. But as the product gets older, you would be um, trying to draw on mustard powder, which would have a little bit of its oil released over time as it sits in the product. And um, There are other issues to master too, like texture, for instance. Texture can be a minefield. Is it too thin? Is it too thick? Is it slimy? Is it snotty? Is it, right, is the, all these different sort of textures. Sorry, yeah, because when you use starches, even though they're natural, if you don't add them at the right time when you're preparing the sauce or you add too much, they actually can get snotty, right? Slimy. Absolutely. So Sometimes. there's a secret of the sauce aisle. It turns out that snotty 
is a really common sauce developer term. And even just something as mundane seeming as the relative buoyancy of sesame seeds. People like Ben and Elspeth will obsess over how to make sesame seeds float instead of sink. If you think about a dressing, we were looking at one out there today that's got sesame seeds in it. And really consumers want a dressing when they pour it out that the sesame seeds are all throughout it, not just sitting on the bottom. And And all these things, you can't just nail them in your kitchen at home. You have to commit to proper factory runs. If you get it right the first time, that's awesome. You don't always get it right the first time. I've done products where we had to do six plant trials. That gets very, very expensive. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. So after all that goes well, if it does go well, only then does a new sauce have a reasonable shot at getting made. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this door at the end, turn right, we wash our hands, and then I'm going to take you to the start of line one, kind of explain the plant, and then we'll move that way. The first thing that hits inside that plant is the smell of the place. It smells like sweet, toasty spices and caramelized vegetables. It smells exactly the way I wish my kitchen would. That sound you hear is the sound of peeled white onions, dozens of them at a time, running through a giant machine that dices them. There are stacks of fresh herbs and spices around the factory, barrels of chili peppers, and lemongrass fronds by the bushel. In one area, not far from that onion machine, workers with huge stirrers that look like boat paddles are gently mixing these giant vats of simmering butter. These aren't powders in water. This is something that is truly created. It's small batch production. Those words, powders in water, they keep coming up. Tell me something, powders in water. This is the sauce business. Who would make sauce out of powder in water? 80% Uh, of the industry. 80% of the industry, which sounds kind of incredible, doesn't it? For the record, it's tough to find any official figures for this sort of thing. So I started reading ingredients lists, looking for words like granulated and dehydrated and milk products instead of cream or milk. And whatever the percentage is, it's really high. Just check out your favorite gourmet barbecue sauce or curry paste next time you're in the grocery store. Or get a load of the ingredients in that jar of supposedly old world style traditional spaghetti sauce. That phrase, old world style, it's literally owned, trademarked by a spaghetti sauce company. Which it turns out is a little rich considering their old world style traditional spaghetti sauce is made with dehydrated onions and soybean oil. When you take a close look at what's in your average sauce aisle, you see a lot of that. Powders and water gussied up to try and look somehow better than they are. Like there's maybe a real live person behind them. Like there's an actual story in those bottles. 
The good news in all this, at least the sort of good news, is all that mediocre sauce leaves room on the shelves for better ideas, for better made sauces. Good sauce sells, because even the expensive stuff, the sauces that are made in reasonably small batches with real ingredients, they don't cost that much. A bottle of sauce is a pretty low stakes way to try a new flavor, or even to check out a different culture. At a lot of modern sauce companies, including Celtrade, the catch-all category that used to be called ethnic has become the bread and butter. You guys are now manufacturing commercial Filipino sauces. What is it about sauce that can help make a cuisine accessible? It's an aspirational purchase, right? It's not, they don't need to stop and find a date and uh, find parking. They can go and get that restaurant experience just from a bottle, and they can do so hoping that it will happen this week, but you know, that bottle will still be there for them three weeks later if it should not happen this weekend. Or two and a half years later, and in my case, I have a lot of those sauces in my house. <laughs> so do I, I have a, I have a crypt. <laughs> Hi, my name is Ann Chung. I'm one of the sisters and co-founders of We Rub You. We are a maker of Korean condiments. I found Ann in her booth on the floor of the Fancy Foods show. We Rub You, the name, it's a kind of Korean-American in-joke. It's cheeky Korean English for we love you. And the rub thing, Ann and her sister Janet are from Texas. You know, where people use barbecue rubs? Get it? I was unemployed. And um, my sister and I had always talked about working together. And we saw Korean food take off in the U.S. And, you know, having grown up in Texas, we never would have anticipated that people would be falling in love with kimchi and whatnot. And then we saw, hey, there's really nothing going on in Korean barbecue sauce space. The sister's main sauce is Korean gochujang, a fermented chili paste. Their business plan hinges on bringing this substance that a lot of shoppers can't even pronounce to the white bread masses. That may sound like a tough road, but it isn't so different from what David Tran did with sriracha. Or while we're talking about so-called ethnic sauces, what wave after wave of salsa companies have accomplished in the last few decades? At least by dollar figures, salsa outsells even ketchup, and it has since the early 1990s. So Anne and Janet, they've got this. You know, we're Korean-American. We're not Korean from Korea. Uh, and we're not like the typical ex-generation American. So I think for us, it's been great because we've been able to kind of approach the food and the flavors from two angles. And so he said, hey, I think there's an opportunity there. Why don't we try and do it? These days, the sisters are fancy food show veterans. This is their fourth year. They even have the prize to prove it. When they debuted their sauce in 2013, it won a Sophie Award, one of the show's highest honors. We Rub You is sold in Whole Foods across the U.S., and it's in loads of other retailers. You can buy it in the U.K. and South Africa. Anne and Janet's brand is pretty much a model of indie sauce industry stardom, which isn't to say it's all come easily so far. I had a job previously. So I wasn't always unemployed, and I was actually in finance for about 10 years. And so I I had a fair amount of savings. And then we also have friends and family, and my husband has a job. We consolidated, and we lowered our cost of living. So my parents, my sister, my husband and I, we all moved from our separate apartments in Brooklyn, and we moved into and downsized into one house in Queens. 
So your whole family's living together. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> to support the sauce business. I mean, yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> totally. How's that going? Great. We highly recommend it to people who get along with their family, <laughs> basically. The sisters, they're part of a wave of sauce makers aiming to cross some very old boundaries of culture and taste. The good news is if any type of food can do it, it's going to be sauce. Krishnendu Ray, he's a sociologist who thinks a lot about that intersection of food and culture, ethnicity and class. I'm the chair of a department called Nutrition and Food Studies at NYU, and we are at Zabar's on 80th Street and Broadway. And this is a serious specialty slash gourmet grocery store neighborhood institution. Exactly. This is iconic. Zabar's is the neighborhood grocery store of my food-loving fever dreams. It's small and crowded and just sort of beautifully dilapidated. It's quite noisy, this part of it, but... uh... Though Zabar's has gone through several expansions over the decades, it's been here in one form or another since 1934. And just as the city around it has changed, so has what Zabar's stocks on its shelves. There's a key part of this place that I really wanted Krishnandu to check out. So why don't we go to the sauce aisle, and we'll we'll start from there. Perfect. Down here. When Krishnandu Ray walks through his sauce aisle, he does it with a sociologist's eye. So this food, you see sambals and tandoori's are all very post-1965. 1965 is important because of the civil rights movement. Most of this post, in fact, 1990s. And this is the group of Asian, Chinese, Indian, Southeast Asian, and Latin Americans that my argument is totally disrupting the American taste right now. The civil rights movement changed the way America admitted immigrants from around the world and slowly opened up its borders. Mainstream American culture, whatever that is, over time it's become at least a little less white. And so of course that turns up here. In fact, we are right in the middle of it, so you see so much of the fusion, so much of the movement based around the mixing of the absorption of the culinary palate's taste of these groups into the American palate. You can clearly see that in terms of range and variety, you see the old established ethnicities. I would say mustard sauces are a good example of Germanic, Northern European. They dominated the number of, uh, in terms of number of immigrants from about, I would say, 1830s to about 1900s, okay? So that almost is the first layer. And there's a lot of mustard here. A lot of mustard sauces and more expensive and more kind of selective. You get mustard sauces, mayonnaises, that sort of thing from northern European immigrants. And then this huge range of olive oils, tapenades, marineras from the waves of Italians who emigrated in the early 20th century. It's a fascinating way of walking through the grocery store. I'm standing in a sauce aisle and thinking, this is delicious food. I can't wait to try some of these flavors. You stand in a sauce aisle and you see waves of immigration. You see acceptance of immigrant groups. What kind of meaning do you read into a place like this? I would say you make a culture portable. And in some ways, we think about food as a culture of roots, 
and rootedness and place Ness. And what sauces do, especially industrial packet sauces, is in fact all about mobility. It's all about, in some ways, placelessness that you can have if you look at the, those sambals and those various kinds of regional barbecue sauces now at Zaybars in the Upper West Side. It's a simplification of a palate and a kind of a homogenization of the palate. We go back and forth about this idea of simplification and homogenization. A lot of sauces get toned down as they're transformed from these really specific regional or cultural touchstones into mainstays of the neighborhood supermarket. A spicy sambal sauce that's been focus grouped and tested for months or years and manufactured in a giant factory, well, so what? At least people are eating sambal, right? Or is it all just another kind of culture washing? Is sauce just a stand-in for real experience? Like, I ate this sambal that I bought for $2.99 and it was yummy, so all of a sudden, I'm down with the Indian people, right? And what about the Sasile's cultural mashups, like the one Krishnendu picks up from a top shelf by a manufacturer called Soy Vey? Break this down for me, would you? Ah, uh, look at this, a taste of island since 1982 take one Jewish boy and one Chinese girl and heaping helpfuls of passion for food, mix in his parents' appetite for tropical flavors, shake, then pull up a beach chair and savor island teriyaki marinade and sauce. Look at this. This is amazing. This is this old immigration, new immigration, and a very American kind of a palate. You can either celebrate it saying, wow, look at this thing. And of course, then you add the third thing to it, which is a tropical island, uh, which becomes the ultimate tourist perspective on culture. It has soy sauce, and then it has vegetable oil, sesame seed, dried onion, some ginger extract, dried ginger sesame oil. This is the, the sweet and sour industrial sauces with, in this case, a quirky story about incorporation of ethnic taste. Look so, at so it's Jewish, Hawaiian, <laughs> soy Jewish, sauce. Hawaiian, Chinese. Okay, so every, every, everything you're saying about soy, you know, I have one basic kind of dinosaur question in the back uh, of my little pea brain, and it's, yeah. but is this good for, is this making the world a better place? Uh, that's too big a question. <laughs> I think I don't think so. It's making the world a better place. Um, at, that, at that level, I think it's just consuming culture, but tasting difference exposes you to the possibility of cultural difference in different bodies. So can we have a table of sauce from around exactly. the world and we all get along kumbaya? So in some ways, culturally, I think it opens up certain doors. Krishnendu isn't into easy answers, and maybe that's because there isn't one. Once sauce gets big enough to make it into major retailers, is it still an expression of culture, of place, of the people who make it? Is there still a story in those bottles? And how's that work for the mega sellers like Ranch or Sriracha or Soy Vey? The nice thing about sauce, though, is there is always, always somebody small, somebody just starting out there is always a budding sauce maker. In my own city, I can think of dozens of them at tiny mom and pop stores and at flea markets and community bazaars and at this little farmer's market, not five minutes from where my drawer of takeout ketchup packets and American soy sauce live. 
For five or six bucks, you can always find a jar of sauce that just kills anything you'll ever get at the supermarket. My name is uh, Blythe Weaver, and I'm owner of Spade and Spoon with my husband, Adam Smith. We grow the main ingredients up at our family farm in Ayton, Ontario. We focus mostly on selling at farmer's markets. We do supply a few small shops here in the city. Blythe and Adam, they run this company selling sauces and pickles and maple syrup they produce. And they do all that in between raising two small kids and running a farm. We have a lovely ketchup that is my grandma's recipe. It's uh, sweetened with our fruit from the farm, so we use peaches, pears, apples with that one. When I first made this recipe after she passed away, I just bawled my eyes out because the smell in the kitchen just reminded me, I'm going to start crying just right now, (laughs) the smell just reminded me so much of her that it's um, just brought me back so many memories. So it's a pretty special, special recipe. So. Oh, ma'am. Oh, it's delicious, and it's got kick, too. It is special. It's incredible. I could eat the stuff by the case. My head, though, my head is still full of all these sausile success stories. I can't help thinking there are probably millions of people who would lose their minds for Blythe's sauce. And so I just come out and ask her. I'm the huge company. I've got $10 million for your recipe. Do you do it? No, I don't think so. I know. It's my grandma's recipe. I don't think that would feel right. I know that sounds so silly, but uh, no thank you. (laughs) Ten million bucks. I'm okay. (laughs) I'll pass. (laughs) Sometimes small is beautiful. This is The Fridge Light. The voices you heard today were Howard Epstein of Carry Out, Peter Neal of Neal Brothers Foods, product developer Elspeth Copeland, Celtrade Canada's Ben Crutch and Chris Bouchard, number one ranch dressing fan Chad Allen of Twisted Ranch, Ann Chung of We Rub You, Krishnendu Ray, an associate professor and chair of New York University's Food Studies Department, Blythe Weaver of Spade and Spoon, Special thanks to everybody we spoke with at the Fancy Foods Show, to Zabars for letting us invade their sauce with a microphone, and also to this shopper. Tell me. I, there's not. <laughs> when, when are we going to be airing? Our executive producer is R.F. Nurani. This episode was produced by Lisa Godfrey, Michelle Macklem, Alison Broverman, and Zoe Tennant. We had help from Cecil Fernandez and Robert Ald. And The Fridge Light, well, we like to think of ourselves as a fresh new show. To keep it that way, we need your help. Please, please, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Chris Nuttall-Smith, and here on the CBC, we're keeping it saucy. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.